Let's all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for your Sabbath. We thank you for the blessings that you've given to each one here. We thank you for the friends and the family we have attending here to worship you, to fellowship with those of like faith. Father, we pray a special blessing upon your people here and upon those afar listening over whatever means it is, that you would be with them, guide them, direct them, and, and help them. Father, you are the one we rely on, and we pray that you would always be with us and guide us and allow us to improve and to better understand and to better devote our lives to you. And we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is uh, certainly a blessing to see everybody here. And I'd like to uh, extend a warm uh, greetings to those who uh, traveled afar to uh, be with us today. For this uh, Sabbath, I want to speak on Paul, the most misunderstood man, and really say person, in the Bible. And that is, uh, again, referring to the Apostle Paul. So what are some, uh, some of the common misconceptions about this man? What do some people believe that aren't, isn't what we, what we find scripturally? Or many believe that he brought in a new faith, different from what we find in the Old Testament. They believe that he abolished the commandments given to Moses, including the Sabbath, the feast days, the clean food laws, the other commandments we find. They also believe, and this is really the, the crux of the issue, they believe that he changed worship into something that was Hebraic to something that is now Roman, or Grecianized Roman, as some say. Yeah, in fact, one of Paul's greatest advocates was a man named Martian. Some say Martian. Martian. Martian lived between 85 and 160 CE. He was an important leader in the early church. Now, what was some of this man's beliefs? You know, some people may think that there was cohesion in the early church. Well, that wasn't really the case. And I believe that there was cohesion among the apostles, of course, but not after their death and not in the early church phase. Well, number one, we know that he rejected the Old Testament, Martian rejected the Old Testament. He also rejected Yahweh of the Old Testament, believe it or not. He believed in Yahweh, but he believed that he was a, a evil uh, presence. He called him the Demiurge, which is considered the uh, creator of the physical universe. He also viewed Yahweh as a jealous uh, tribal deity of the Jews. This man was, uh, was something else. You know, in this way, he shared many parallels with Gnosticism. This was sort of just taking root during this time within church history, the uh, Gnosticism. This man shared many parallels with that. For this reason, some scholars believe that he may have been a Gnostic himself, or in part anyway. The Gnostics viewed, as, as he did in many ways, the physical universe as bad, as something to be seen as evil. And the whole purpose of this life is to shed our physical existence into something more spiritual, to get back to that Gnostic or that Gnosis, and by the way, that's where Gnostics, Gnosticism comes from. Us. Gnosis is a Greek word meaning knowledge. Knowledge is this secret knowledge. He also viewed Yahshua's physical body as only an imitation of the spiritual. For this reason, he also rejected his birth, death, and resurrection. Now, not only did he deny the Old Testament, but he also denied much of the New Testament. He only accepted part of Luke and only 10 of Paul's epistles. In fact, he drew most of his twisted theology from Paul, from the Apostle Paul. Now, because of uh, these beliefs, the early church fathers rightfully denounced Martian and deemed him a heretic. You know, as a side note, I learned this here oh, some time ago, but some even in the early church considered throwing out Paul because of Martian. He had attainted this apostle in such a great way that they were afraid to even include this man in the canon. We know that they did, but some were concerned because of what this man did, how he twisted Paul's writings. Matter of fact, this trend of twisting Paul's writings is nothing new. We actually see a warning from Peter about this. Second Peter chapter 3, 15 through 16 says this. It says, In an account that the long-suffering are master of salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So here Peter is recognizing 
Paul within his epistle. He says, there's also in all his epistles, notice that, in all his epistles, this is Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, they wrestle with it, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. So what does Peter say here about Paul and his writings? We're confirmed here that sometimes he's hard to understand. He's difficult to comprehend. You know, I think anybody familiar with Paul's writings would agree that sometimes Paul is hard to understand, hard to comprehend. I don't believe it was Paul's goal to be confusing. I don't believe that this was his intent. I believe the reason Paul's confusing is because he was very deep theologically, very deep. He really was the only apostle that discussed in depth the roles between faith and salvation and grace and redemption, justification, very hard concepts in some ways to understand. Now, the challenge for us in this environment is that Paul's environment was much different. What do I mean by that? Or during Paul's time, the focus was salvation by works, essentially. It was salvation by works with an emphasis on the sacrificial system. Where today, the focus is something different. Today, the focus in the church is on salvation by grace apart from works. So you see they're diametrically opposed to one another. The environment that we live in today, the message that we hear today, is vastly different from what Paul heard during his lifetime. So what else does Peter say here? Where he warns us. He warns us about Paul, again, being hard to understand. And he says that many who are unlearned, many who are unstable, twist Paul's writings to their own destruction. Do we see this happening today? Do we, do, do we see this in nominal worship in this day and age? You know, out of all the apostles, Paul is normally the one used to support ideas like the Old Testament is no longer necessary, that the commandments are something to be ignored, that the commandments are no longer required, that they're old and archaic. These concepts generally come from the man we know as Paul. You know, I've never heard anyone quote Peter or James to confirm that the law is no longer necessary. Have you? I've never heard that. I've never heard someone say, but look in James, we find this. They don't quote James, they quote Paul. So we need to be careful with Paul's writings. We need to make sure that we're not twisting his writings to fit our own theology, to fit our own beliefs, as so many do today. I want to point out one more thing here, and that is Peter confirms here that Paul's writings are scripture. Scripture. This is a very important point. He says, as you know, as other scriptures, you know, comparing that to Paul's writings. Now, this word scriptures is from the Greek graphe. The uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon defines this word as, quote, the scripture used to denote either the book itself or its contents. So this is Peter's description of Paul's epistles, other scriptures, including Paul. Now, the Vine's Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words says this. It says, of the, and this is, again, of Graphe. It says, of the Old Testament scriptures, those accepted by the Jews as canonical, and all those of the New Testament which were to be accepted by Christians as authoritative, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, these later were to be discriminated from the many forged epistles and other religious writings already produced and circulated in Timothy's time. You know, many people don't realize that. You know, there were many, many different epistles, many different evangels floating around during this time, but the, what we have in the canon today are those books that were recognized by the church, or I should say by the, really it was by the church, because the church was the one who canonized this, but by the assemblies at large. It was by the believers at large. They recognized these across the board as inspired of Almighty. There were a few other requirements, too, that they, that they held to. goes on to say such discrimination would be directed by the fact that every scripture characterized by the inspiration of G.O.D. would be profitable for the purposes mentioned. So what do we see here? What's the message here from Peter? And Peter is a great apostle. I mean, Peter is somebody we can look to 
for direction. And Peter says that Paul's writings are considered scripture. So this shows and proves and confirms that Paul's epistles are scripture. They're part of the inspired work that makes up the Bible, scriptures as we know it. This is one reason why I have such an issue with those who believe Paul is a false apostle. And I, I'm sure we've all heard that. You know, but think about it. If, if Paul is indeed a false apostle, by, by necessity, not only must we remove Paul from the Bible, as some do, but we really also must remove Peter and Luke. Because Peter confirms Paul's epistles, right? And Luke gives you account. So we would have to remove every epistle of Paul. In addition to that, we would also have to remove, again, Peter and Luke. So here's a summary of the points we've looked at so far. Number one, Paul's writings are often hard to understand. Number two, many twist Paul's writings to their own destruction, something we continue to see in the church. Again, nobody is misquoted or misunderstood like this single apostle. Number three, Paul's letters are to be considered scripture, meaning part of the inspired text of the Bible. Now, in the remainder of this message, I want to look at some of the perplexing passages by Paul, explain what he's conveying, what he's trying to communicate, and why the popular notions are simply false. So the first example is Romans 3, verse 28. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, it says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without deeds of the law. Now, it's probably not hard to imagine how people might interpret this passage. They will say something like, we're now no longer under the law, we're under faith, we're saved by grace. But, you know, the sad reality is the vast majority of Bible believers are wrong. Now, what is the message Paul here is conveying? What is he really saying here? Whereas you might suspect this is nothing to do with the law. This is nothing to do with the fact that the law is no longer obligatory. We know that it is. Before I explain what Paul is saying, let me give you some background as to who this man was. You know, there's so many people, they just have no idea who this guy was. And it's important to realize his upbringing, his background, what he accomplished. You know, prior to Paul's conversion, we know that he was a diehard Jew. Nobody was more zealous. Nobody was more committed. Nobody was more devoted to his Jewish faith than this man we know as Paul. He was a Pharisee. And, you know, the Pharisees were, you know, no, nobody could outdo a Pharisee. He believed that redemption was through the law. But after coming to the Messiah, he realized an important truth. And that is that redemption, justification, is not through the law. It is through faith in Yahshua the Messiah. And that's the point he's trying to convey here. He realized that the commandments were still necessary. But he also realized that redemption is not something we can earn. And that's something I say pretty often because I know there are some within this circle who will say or convey this idea that we earn. We don't earn salvation. We don't earn redemption. We don't earn justification. There's nothing we can do. Yahshua died so that he might grant us the hope through the redemption of his shed blood. And that's the message we find here. But again, Paul's not saying that the law is not, not, no longer necessary, that the law is no longer obligatory. Paul's simply saying, look, when it comes to redemption, when it comes to justification, when it comes to the cleansing of our sins, there's nothing we can do, and this is a gift, and this is through faith in the blood of our Savior. You know, as a believer in the commandments, I have no issues with this because I, I understand the difference. I understand that Paul's not doing away with anything. Paul's showing this understanding that he received that his, his redemption is not through him. It is not through his good works. It is not through his deeds. It is not through anything he did. But again, this does not invalidate the commandments. 
You know, in case people might have misunderstood his message, here's what Paul says in verse 31. Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not, he says. Yea, or yes, we establish the law. So Paul asks here whether this faith makes void the commandments. You know, it's almost as if Paul anticipated this. So that's what I think. I think Paul's writing this epistle and he's thinking, okay, some are going to interpret this statement as saying this. So he closes here by this statement asking, does this then make void the law through faith? And Paul says, certainly not. Paul says, certainly not. He says that we are to uphold, to uphold the law. That's such an important concept that we are to establish it. I want to delve into this word establish for just a moment. This word comes from the Greek histemi. The Thayer's Greek lexicon defines this word in the following. It says to establish a thing, to cause it to stand, to uphold or sustain the authority or force of anything. Based on this definition, does it sound like Paul is throwing out the commandments? When he says, no, we're to establish them. What message do we find here through the Greek? What he's saying here is, that, that we are not to remove the authority of the law, that we are not to remove the, the establishment, the obligation of the commandments. You know, how does this compute with this definition of, again, of the law no longer necessary? It doesn't. It doesn't compute, and that's the problem. The Greek shows that Paul's not saying that we were to obliterate the law, that we're to abolish the law, that we're to set aside the law. He says the complete opposite is we are to establish it, and that means we are to establish the authority of the commandments within our lives after we have come to the Messiah, after we are washed of our sins. And that's the difference. That's the difference. The belief is Paul uh, doing away with the commandments is simply wrong. He's speaking about speaking about justification, and now he's showing that we still have an obligation to obey those commandments. Or another confusing passage is Romans 10, verse 4. It says, Therefore, Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So is Paul saying here that the law is no longer necessary for those of us in Messiah? Is that the message he's trying to convey? It really comes down to the meaning of one word here, and that is end. So what is the meaning of this word end? Where it comes from a Greek word, telos. Now, telos can be defined in two different ways. Some people, by the way, they don't realize here in the Greek and the Hebrew, there's many, many different definitions, and we need to understand what fits based on the context. So here's what this word means, and this is from Strong's. It says from a primary telo, to set out for a definite point or goal. Properly, the point aimed at is a limit, that is, by implication, the conclusion of an act or state. So we find here that this definition applies two things. Number one, it implies a goal a, or a point that we, uh, that we aim at. And number two, we see that it can also imply termination, a conclusion. So which one fits? Which one applies here to Romans 10. Or the fact that Yahshua said in Matthew 5, 17 that he came not to destroy the law but to fulfill it, meaning to really do it, to, to complete it, shows that it was never his intent to do away with the commandments. And we know that Paul would have never contradicted this statement, even though many believe that. He asked the other odd thing about the Apostle Paul is people will read the Messiah, they'll read the words of our Savior, and they'll come up with the conclusions that he obeyed. And yet when they reach Paul, all of that's done away with. Why would Paul ever contradict the Messiah? And yet we find that all throughout nominal worship today, this, this thought of Paul was the one who really introduced what we believe. No, if the Messiah never introduced it, Paul was a false apostle. Paul was an apostle of the Messiah. Paul did not start a new faith. You know, we actually see a... An example of this definition of telos in James 5, verse 11. This is a really good 
passage to turn to in correlation with Romans 10 verse 4. It says, you have heard of the patience of Job and have seen, now notice it, and have seen the end, the telos of Yahweh. That Yahweh is very pitiful and tender mercy. So is James confirming here that our Father in Heaven no longer exists? I mean, that's what many would assume based on this understanding of telos, or of course Yahweh exists, that can't be it. This is referring to the goal or the example of what it means to show compassion. Again, read that again. So let's read that with, with, with both definitions. That we have seen the conclusion, that we have seen the, the, the termination of Yahweh. Or it doesn't make sense, does it? But if we say we have seen the goal of Yahweh, right, that Yahweh is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So you see, this is referring to Yahweh being the goal of compassion, being the goal of mercy. It's not referring to as obliteration, as people would like to believe based on the usage in Romans 10 verse 4. It's referring to the goal, that Yahweh is the goal of what it means to show compassion, to show pity. Certainly not the goal of obliteration. So nothing could be further from the truth. Paul in Romans 10 verse 4 is simply showing that the Messiah is a goal, not the termination is Again, many believe. And we find another example that's somewhat related to this, conveying many of the same thoughts in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. So Galatians 3, verse 24 through 26 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Messiah that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of Yahweh by faith in Messiah Yahshua. Now, in response to what Paul says here, most would make the argument that we are now no longer under the schoolmaster, under the law, under the Torah, the commandments, because, again, Messiah has come. What we must understand, though, is the meaning of this word, schoolmaster. What does it mean, schoolmaster? It comes from the Greek, pehidagogos, and according to Strong's, refers to, quote, a boy leader, that is, a servant whose office it was to take a, the ch- uh, children to school, by implication, a tutor. Now, the Thayer's Greek lexicon, it offers a really great definition for this. I'll read it. I think we might have this in the Restoration Study Bible. This, this is a reference. But, it, but here's what it says. This is a tutor that is a guardian and guide of boys. Among the Greeks and the Romans, the name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the better class. The boys were not allowed to much as to step out of the houses without them before arriving at the age of manhood. So a schoolmaster, as we see here, was a person who taught young boys different morals and values and ethics. That was the purpose of this schoolmaster. Now, what happened when these young men, young young boys, grew up and they were no longer under the tutelage of their schoolmaster? Did they forget everything they were taught? Did they forsake every value and every moral and every ethic? Of course not. They continued with it. They stayed with it. They took those principles that they learned from that schoolmaster, from that tutor, and they applied it just as we do today. You know, this same lesson also applies to schooling today. If we don't go to school, most of us don't, go to school, spend two, three, four, five, eight years in school to only forget everything we learned. No, we take that knowledge and we apply that to whatever occupation we're pursuing. That is what we do. And that's the same concept here. We don't forsake everything we understood when Messiah comes. No, we apply that because the Messiah symbolizes those ethics. He symbolizes those morals. He symbolizes those values that we find within the word. Only through Yahweh's commandments do we understand morality. Do we understand value? And Yahshua is that value. He is that morality. He is the bread of life. He is the example. He is the word And he embodies those values and those ethics. So we don't forsake that. 
If not for the commandments, for instance, thou shalt not murder, how would we know that murder was wrong? How would we know? We would not know. The commandments are not negative. The commandments are not bad. The commandments are not something that we should look down upon. The commandments are great because they define morality. They define ethics. They define how our Father in Heaven thinks and what he wants from you and I. You know, the same can be said and asked about all the laws we find in the Old Testament. Yahweh's laws, his commandments, are not just a useless random list of do's and don'ts. Some people really view it that way. They see these laws and they they just think a bunch of nomads decided to write down some commandments for these Jews or Israelites to follow. That's not, not it at all. These do's and don'ts, they're a reflection of his morality, of his ethics, of his values. Without the commandments, we are without any moral compass as a guide. You know, it's remarkable that so many are willing, with this in mind, to throw out the commandments. You have to wonder if they've ever really considered the rationale behind it this new-found theology. You know, think about it. If we throw the commandments, what then? What then? We say that Yahweh's commandments have no bearing. They have no application. They have no obligation to our lives. What then? You know, as a nation, I think we're seeing a great example right now within this nation. Yahweh says that homosexuality is an abomination Conversely, our Supreme Court has said that gay marriage is a right to every person. Those don't jive. Yahweh defines life as beginning in the womb. Our judicial system disagrees. Again, they don't jive. We must have Yahweh's word as our moral compass. When we do not have moral, Yahweh's word as our moral compass, we must rely on man's moral compass, which is corrupt. Because the scripture says every imagination, every thought is evil and corrupt. And that is true. That was true then. That is true today. Without Yahweh supporting, without Yahweh backing, without Yahweh, the one showing us right and wrong, we will not get it right. You see, man will never get it right without our Father in heaven. This is why it's important that we don't forsake our schoolmaster after coming to the Messiah. This is why it makes no sense to forsake our schoolmaster, because our schoolmaster, again, showed us, taught us, helped us understand the ethics and values that Yahshua himself embodies and represents. And that is why we continue with them, as that child would after becoming an adult. Well, let's move on to Ephesians 2, verse 14. This is another passage of Paul. And this is also often misconstrued. So here's what Paul says. For he is our peace who hath made both one. This is a reference to Messiah, of course. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Enmity is conflict, is strife. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain or two one new man. So making peace. Again, many will look at this, they will read this, and they will come up with this notion that Paul is again advocating that the commandments are no longer necessary, that the law is no longer obligatory, that we can now ignore what we find in the Old Testament for this faith and grace-only concept that many profess today. You know, I think by now we know here that this was not Paul's intent. Paul's intent was not to convey was not to communicate this idea that the commandments are no longer relevant. So what message then is he trying to convey? What what message is Paul trying to communicate to us? Where he's speaking about the division that existed between Jew and Gentile. And how through Yahshua these two were now one new man. And number two, we see here a word ordinances, ordinances, or this word is important to understand. It comes from the Greek word dogma, dogma. So you see ordinances, they're contained in ordinances. ordinances. The word is a dogma in Greek. Now here's how Strong's defines this word. 
This is from Strong's. It says a law, civil, ceremonial, or ecclesiastical. There's, there's a Greek lexicon, offers a more, more involved definition. Here's what it says. It says doctrine, decree, ordinances, used of public decrees, used of the Roman Senate, used of rulers, and those are all examples there is doctrine, decree, or ordinances. It says, uh, number two, the rules and requirements of the law of Moses carrying a suggestion of severity and of threatening judgment. Well, I don't believe that's the case, and we'll see why that is. But third, it says used of certain degrees of the apostles relevant or uh, relative to right living. Now, again, the only definition I would disagree with here is the second definition. That the, this is a reference to the law of Moses. I'll show you why in just a moment why that doesn't fit based on how it's used within the New Testament. But first, I want you to notice the first two definitions. The first two definitions. So the first one is referring to man-made law, right? Man-made law. The second is referring to laws pertaining to the apostles. Now, we see examples of both of those things, laws pertaining to man, just civil law, and also laws or commandments given by the apostles. But these are not laws that Yahweh commanded within the Old Testament. That's very important to understand and comprehend. Now, we find, again, through the New Testament, why these laws or why these definitions apply. So which one would not apply here? Or again, the, the, the second one, as we've already seen. Now, the question is, what caused strife between Jews and Gentiles? That's really what Paul's referring to. So which definition caused this conflict? Was it laws that were given by the apostles? Of course not. Was it laws, though, that were established by the Jews? Rabbinical laws? Of course. These were the laws that caused this conflict, that caused this strife that we find here. You know, the Jewish rabbis forced a division between Jews and Gentiles. I want to go back and explain for just a moment why the second definition here in Thayer's doesn't fit. You know, we see this word, dogma, a handful of times. Matter of fact, we we, we find it in four other passages and how it's used. I want to review all all four of these. First, I want to look at the three because the three are very quick, very easy to understand. Then I want to delve into the the, uh, fourth one. So let's look at the three. So Luke, chapter 2, verse 1, this is an example of the word dogma where it's used. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So what are we referring to here? What is Scripture talking about here? Is it speaking about Old Testament commandments? Is it referring to Yahweh's divine law? No, of course not. What it's referring to, in this case, is a law set forth from Caesar Augustus. It's not referring to man. It's not referring to Yahweh's law. It's referring to man made law, civil law in this case. Or how about another one, Acts 16, verse 4, it says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the degrees, the dogma for to keep, that were ordinances of the apostles and elders, which were at Jerusalem. So what are we talking about here? Well, these were commandments, if you will. They were decrees given by the apostles. But this is not the Old Testament commandments as we find. These were, again, directions given from the apostles in the New Testament. Now we find one more here, Acts 17, verse 7. It says, Whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is no, there, uh, that there is another king, one Yahshua. So what is this referring to? Is this referring to the Old Testament commandments, the Old Testament law that we find? No, of course. It's referring to the decrees of Caesar, the dogma of Caesar, the man-made civil laws established by man. It's not referring to Yahweh's law. It's not referring to his commandments. And these are all the instances we find of this word dogma. Now, there's one other. There's one more example we find. Now, this is in Colossians. Colossians 2, verse 14. This is a very common passage, by the way, people will use to, again, show that these laws are no longer obligatory, Yahweh's laws. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, dogma, that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the stake, or as they would say, nailing it to the cross. So what do we find here? Well, as you've probably all guessed, most will interpret this as 
referring to the commandments we find within the Old Testament. They will try to make the case that the commandments were a detriment to mankind, that they were against us, that these, that these commandments somehow were to be feared and simply had to be removed for man's benefit. Now, before I go any further, let me ask you this, and we've already sort of talked about it somewhat, but are Yahweh's commandments against us? Are the commandments against us? You know, think about that for just a moment. Think about the rationale, somebody using this, this debate, this argument, to say that the laws are no longer necessary. By default, they're going to have to say that Yahweh's laws were against us. You know, for example, should we consider the following commandments as something bad, as something against society? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Are these bad? Should we review them, see them as something negative? Well, of course not. You know, are we better off as a people, with or without them? Well, the vast majority would agree that these commandments are vital to a moral nation. And, and that's the dichotomy of this discussion. Because when you really get down to the, where the rubber meets the road, most would agree that laws like, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, these are good things. But then they'll turn right back around and they'll say, well, those laws are no longer needed. Or it's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. You can't have one side saying the laws are no longer obligatory and they're against us. And then on the other hand, recognizing the moral, the validity, the value in the commandments. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. You know, if this be so, why then are so many ready to dismiss the laws we find within Scripture? Because, again, they recognize the value you know, if you would get it, you know, as they send these people on the street, they'll interview and say, okay, is it okay to commit murder? Is there something wrong with that law that says you shall not commit adultery? Or most, now some, some might be okay with that in this immoral age. Most, though, would say no. You know, for me, this simply goes back to 2,000 years of church tradition. The Roman church has said for 2,000 years that Yahshua's come and he paid, he's paid the price for those Laws, that we no longer have to live according to those statutes, that we can live as we see fit. You know, as believers, though, we can't have it both ways. We are either going to recognize, again, the value of Yahweh's commandments, or we are going to ignore them. And when we ignore them, as we've already talked about, it doesn't end well. As a culture, we are struggling. As a nation, we are struggling and we are struggling, I believe, simply because we have lost the moral fabric of this nation. You know, people don't even know, my wife and I, we were talking about this morning, this, I don't know who it was, but I don't get into too many things, whether it's entertainment or whatnot, but, but some crazy actor uh, saying that her son or daughter was the other gender. She was three or four at the time, I don't know. Craziness. I mean, we can't even define gender anymore. And you would think that this is something, I'm making this up, that this is a hyperbole. No, this is reality. People don't even know genders anymore. It's like, what are you, a male or a female? It's real simple. It's not complicated. <laughs> but because we have allowed ourselves to go so far, and we've, re we've removed that moral fabric of Yahweh's word, we no longer know these very... Simple, simple things. That's why Yahweh's laws are important. So again, as going, getting back to this uh, passage and getting off of my diatribe here, the uh, word ordinances in the Greek does not refer to Yahweh's law. Look it up. It doesn't refer to our Father's law. It refers to man-made law, commandments. Not always bad, by the way, because we see that it refers to the laws of the apostles were giving, but these are not the commanded laws we find from Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now, how do we know this? How do we know this refers to man-made law? We know we see this in verse 20, so sometimes all we have to do to understand is continue reading. So Colossians 2, 20 through 22 says, Wherefore, if you be dead with Messiah... Being dead is an analogy of baptism, by the way, of baptism in Yahshua's name. When we 
go under the waters of baptism. We die to Messiah, Scripture says, and we then rise as new creatures. It says, from the rudiments of the world, why is though living in the world are we subject to ordinances? This is the same word, basically. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. It says, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the doctrines of men. Now, the word ordinances here is it's not quite the same word as we found earlier. This comes from the Greek dogma zito, which comes from dogma. And Strong's defines this word as to prescribe by statute, that is to submit to ceremonially rule. So what type of ceremonial rule is Paul referring to? What is he referring to here? Is he, again, referring to Yahweh's law? Of course not. Is he referring to the apostles' commandments? No. What is he referring to? What he's referring to is man-made rabbinical commandments. That's what he's referring to. I don't have this on the slide, but I want to turn there anyway. So either you can listen and, uh, or you can take out your Bibles and follow me. It doesn't matter. But um, Mark 7 I think we're going to maybe review some of this in the next message, but I'm not going to look at it all, but just um, what, I, what I want to focus on here. So verse 1, it says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, that, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. This is an example of rabbinical law. And by the way, they still do this. When I'm in Israel... They still do. You go into the restrooms of, of any public facility, and you'll see these pots. And this is for this purpose. So what we find here has not gone away. I mean, they're still doing this to this day. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things, there be which they re, uh, have received to hold as a washing of cups and of pots and brazen vessels and of tables. Now I'm going to stop there because I think I might review that in my next message. But we, what we find here in this passage is rabbinical washings. These are rabbinical washings that Yahshua chastises the, the Jews for because they were putting more emphasis on their tradition than on Yahweh's word. And we can never do that. We can never put our own tradition. That's one of the lessons we find here, by the way. We can never put our own traditions, our own bias, our own belief system above Yahweh's word. And that's why it's important that we really take a close look at what we believe. And that's one of the lessons of of even the feast we had last month, to review these things, to, to look at these things, and to make sure that they align with Scripture. So again... What we find in Mark 7, also Matthew 15, and here in this passage, this is not referring to Yahweh's word. This is referring to rabbinical washings. And we see that, I think, through the, through, through the text here. It says, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using. Again, this is not, there is nothing in Torah. Matter of fact, this is referring again, I believe, to this, this uh, concept of these cer- cer- ceremonial washings. Here's what... Um, Jewish, my Jewish learning says it's a website talks about different, different traditions, and I have a video after this to actually show how this works. It says this: it says the procedure is to pour water out from one from a cup or a glass twice first over the right hand. Now in the video, shall three times. I'm not sure which one's right, but two or three times, and then twice over on the left hand. Care being taken that the unwashed hands. Do not touch the water used for the washing. The hands are then dried with a towel before partaking of the meal. A benediction is recited. A benediction is recited over the washing of the hands. Quote, Blessed are thou, O Yahweh, our Elohim, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with thy commandment and has commanded us concerning the washing of hands. Now, I don't know where that commandment's at. It's 
far as I know, that commandment's missing from the book we use. And this is an example of a rabbinical commandment we find. And again, something Paul was dealing with. Paul was dealing with these Jewish rabbinical laws. And, you know, most people, they don't understand that. So I want to show a quick video. So if we can cue that up, and um, I'll let you do your thing up on the stage, because I'll mess it up if not. But this is an example of just a video of how they would wash their, their hands from a rabbinical standpoint. And that is what Natilat Yadayim is for us. It's a way of saying the meal we are about to eat is holy, and we are preparing ourselves for that holiness. A special cup with two handles, called a kvot, is used to wash the hands. Before we eat a meal of bread, we wash our hands in a special way. This is called Natilat Yadayim, the kvot containing the water is passed to the left hand and then water is poured three times on the right hand. Then the cup is passed to the right hand and water poured three times onto the left hand. The water should cover the entire hand up to the wrist. It is customary to hold the cup with a towel when pouring on the left hand. A little water should remain on the left hand to be rubbed over both hands while reciting the blessing. Baruch Ata Adoinoi Eloiheinu Melech Hoilam Asher Kidishonu Bemitzvoisov Vitsivonu Al Natilas Yodoyim. Then the hands are dried. One should not talk until the blessing Hamotzi has been recited over the bread. Okay. It's an interesting video, and that is what they do in Israel, by the way. You can see these pots in in every public facility you go into. Now, even though this tradition, and I do believe they they had good intents, because I don't know if he caught the very beginning of that, but he talks about how this really, for the Jews, it goes back to the washings of the temple and that sort of thing. So I think the intentions are good. The problem is they, again, place their own rabbinical man-made laws above Yahweh's word, and this also served, again, as a division between Jew and Gentile, because if... As a Gentile, if you did not do this, you were unclean. And again, this served as a, as a point of contention, a point of conflict. And, and Yahshua, he came to die for the sins of all of mankind, not just the Jews, for all of mankind. And in so doing, he made all mankind one, it says, through him. But again, this correlates to what Paul speaks about, I believe, in Scripture, in Colossians, in Ephesians, especially where it says, touch not, taste not, handle not. Now, why were these ceremonial rules against us? I've already sort of mentioned this, but they put a division, a conflict, between the Jews and the Gentiles. You know, in addition to these washings, we also know that it was against rabbinic tradition, that it was against belief that the Jews would, would, would eat with a person of another nation. And you can still see this, even in Israel. You know, in fact, I'm not going to turn there, but most of us know the story in Acts 10. You know, Peter sees this grand vision, this sheet coming down from heaven, these unclean animals on the sheet. He hears a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. That's done three times. The sheet then goes away. Peter's perplexed. And yet church theologians know exactly what Peter's message meant even though Peter himself did not. So that's the, that's the cliff notes, by the way, of Peter's vision. But what Yahweh was trying to show Peter was this, because we find out later that Yahweh was trying to show Peter that he was not to call any man common or unclean, because he went to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, and he sat there and he had a meal with Cornelius, and he explains how he was not permitted to do this as a Jew. But he did that because Yahweh sent him. And Yahweh was conveying to him the same thing Paul is conveying to us in the New Testament. That Yahshua, through him, that there's no more need for this division. There's no more need for this animosity. There's no more need for this conflict. Because through Yahshua's shed blood, he makes us whole. He cleanses us no matter who or what we are. Do you see why it's important, so important that we as Believers understand Paul, understand his writings, and are not confused by what he says. You know, I said in the beginning, no other person in the Bible is more misunderstood than this man. 
When you look at all the arguments and all the false notions and you tie it back to a passage, and most of the time you can do that, you're going to find that generally it ties back to something Paul said. You know, Peter warns, again, that Paul's epistles are hard to understand. And many construe Paul's epistles to their own destruction. You know, I've also seen Sabbath believers throughout Paul because they believe that Paul is a false apostle, false prophet. You know, Paul, for me, is such an essential part of the New Testament. I don't believe we can do that. You know, I'm just so, I, I can't even tell you how opposed I am to those who begin to throw out books, especially Paul. You know, think about it. If we threw out Paul, we would have to remove Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and possibly Hebrews. And because Peter endorses Paul, we'd also have to remove 1st and 2nd Peter. And because Luke refers to Paul, we'd have to remove Luke. What are you left with? You're left with Martian's New Testament, really, and that's about it, because we've thrown out Paul's writings. Now, this sounds ridiculous, and it really is, but believe me when I say I've seen more than one example of this. And you know where it often leads? They don't stop here. They stop, they throw out the New Testament. Some of them then will go on to either convert to Judaism, which I've seen. Some of them will throw out the Bible entirely and become agnostic. It's a very, very dangerous path to go down, to throw out Paul. Now, part two, we're going to continue looking at many of Paul's passages that people often confuse. Subjects are going to include worship, heaven, and clean foods. Well, I pray that this uh, message has been a blessing. I, I pray that it's helped you understand Paul better and to realize the value that he brings to Yahweh's word. And, you know, it's my hope, this and so many other topics, that As Yahweh's people, we would always prove what we believe from Scripture and hold fast to that which is good as we find. May Yahweh bless you.